This is undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. Now let's get into it. Matthew. Yes. Have you ever heard about racist highways? You know, as a kid, I hadn't. <laughs> okay. This might surprise you as a white guy who grew up in the middle of cornfields. <laughs> but when I moved to St. Louis after college, and that's where I first started to hear about the idea of highways being racist. Oh, wow. But, but tell me more. All right. So how did we get to racist highways, right? We want to think about... America coming out of the Civil War, 1861 to 65. Then they enter a phase that we know as Reconstruction. And then we enter a phase that we've commonly come to call Jim Crow, where we see white supremacy run amok. But this was instantiated into law by a very famous court case. Do you know which court case? No, I didn't study for this test. Okay, it's fine. You still get 100. Good. Yes. It was Plessy versus Ferguson. Yes. Yeah, you remember, right? Yes. But this was a landmark court case that upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation. So in 1896 then, in the Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson, Homer Plessy sued a commuter train company for violating his rights by refusing to allow him to sit in first-class accommodations along with white customers. And the Supreme Court would rule that segregation was legal in public facilities so long as the accommodations were separate but equal. And this court case would justify segregation and racist practices for the next 58 years as, but as we know, it would persist beyond that until it was overturned in Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas mm-hmm. in 1954. Now, we know that a big part of this, uh, of that court case was the 13th and 14th Amendment. Lots of people are getting into the 13th and 14th Amendment. They might, may have watched 13th mm-hmm. um, on Netflix or 14th, which was recently, I think, Will Smith narrated mm-hmm. on Netflix as well, right? But we know that the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment has a lot to do with, especially the 14th Amendment, talk about naturalized people born or naturalized in the United States, you know, that no state shall make or enforce any law that shall abridge the privilege or immunities of citizens of the United States, right? And the 13th was about slavery. And we know about the famous clause, right, that says no slavery or involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, Mm -hmm. whereof the party shall be duly convicted shall exist within the United States. And so after slavery, In Reconstruction, we have these 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. But so much is at stake during this time, and so much is unsettled, right? Many in the former Confederate states are bound and determined to narrow the scope of what these amendments mean. 
They cannot reverse these amendments by law, right? Because it's a condition of their readmission into the union, right? right? So their their policy is to squeeze down what these amendments appear to have granted to African Americans. And so in Plessy versus Ferguson, the court case would re- revolve around the 13th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. So the question was, did Louisiana, did it violate Plessy's equal protection under the law with this kind of segregated seating. That was ultimately the question. Was any state requiring separate accommodations on public conveyance for whites and African Americans a violation of equal protection? And should it be overturned because it's unconstitutional? There was this idea that you cannot legislate morality, which was the the ruling from um, Justice Henry Brown, who basically said that legislation is powerless to eradicate racial instinct or to abolish distinctions based upon physical differences. And so the court declared that Louisiana's law was reasonable. It was a reasonable exercise of the state's police power. So we have segregation, we have rights for African Americans, and now we're seeing how it's affecting movement, Mm -hmm. transportation. African Americans know this. They internalize this idea that they're required to sit at the back of the transportation, and they also know that traveling can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. You move (laughs) through these spaces at your own well-being or danger. So Victor Green, does that the Green Book ring a bell? Sure does. Yeah. He developed a travel guide for African-Americans as a tool for African-Americans to survive this kind of contested and disputed landscape of Jim Crow segregation, right? So the Green Book becomes a symbol of the efforts of African-Americans to be mobile and to to also push back against the power of segregation in terms of tourism, in terms of transportation, in terms of movement. And so African-American travelers, you know, it's allowing them to explore travel and tourism in this kind of a marginalized space in America. And so Victor Green's Green Book and Traveler's Guide as a, as a thing that is published to help assist African-Americans avoid discriminatory accommodations and to document and to spaces that they could actually stop and get food or use a restroom or get a grab a hot lunch right safely safely that is the operative word right there right because african-americans think about the inconvenience you're driving all the way this is the time of the great migration african-americans are moving en masse to chicago to st louis to detroit to New York. I mean, these cities are sweltering with African Americans moving there. So what? how would they get there if they're not allowed to stop at these other accommodations? They'd have to prepare extensive baskets of foods, blankets, pillows to accommodate themselves. Are they bringing bottles along to pee in? I don't know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. What kind, just the hassles, this is segregation. 
that is affecting. You have to bring your own lunch. Probably African-Americans were buying up coolers and all this kind of stuff. You know, it becomes this kind of guide to hotels, motels, tourist homes, barbershops, beauty parlors, service stations, garages, liquor store that help African-Americans to navigate space, especially between 1910-1970, the spirit of the Great Migration. And in recent times, I've gotten quite fond of the show, even though it will not have a second season. Have you heard of Lovecraft Country? I have. I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Oh, but it you looks should so definitely good. see Lovecraft Country. Uncle George, one of the character in, if you know H.P. Lovecraft, right? Who he is as as a writer and what that means for black people, um, but he develops this fictional safe Negro travel guide, which mm. is a nod to the Green Book. It's accounting for safe spaces, which communities are safe for African Americans, and this is in Chicago, and which is in. Not the South, right? right. <laughs> but we're seeing segregationist policies there, which we know is not fiction. <laughs> and these policies are mandated by law. Even though we don't have de jour segregation, segregation by law, de facto segregation still exists in Chicago. And so we see Lovecraft Country, this show, takes these seemingly ordinary things in the life of African Americans and bring new considerations to it through the the horror genre. Mm. This is what fascinates me about it. So the Green Book is about safe spaces and traveling where to rest your head. The main character, Tick, comes to Chicago. They go on a road trip, and they start to see the horrors of what happens when you go to the wrong place. Mm. And horror here functions in an interesting way to show us the kinds of dystopia that black people live in because of segregation. It tells you the kinds of cultural boundaries, whether they're imaginary or they're physical boundaries created by segregation, right? Can black people go into the woods? <laughs> you know? Uh, they want to come out. Uh, can they go in, you know, it has the same function as a haunted house for black people because of race. We see that the green book here is for commerce, but it's also a map of danger. Mm. It's maps, it takes you on routes that will lead you to or away from danger. And it's also a way for black people to police themselves. You internalize these segregationist policies you use that to conceptualize your place in the world. Hmm. Where can you go? Where can't you go? Can you step over this train track? What will happen once you step over that train track? And so the true horror that the Green Book shows is not the kind of fear of the kind of cosmic zombies and things like that we might see in the genuine horror. It is the known horror that black people know to this day. Shopping while black, Karens, calling the police. These are the real horrors that the Green Book tells us about. And having said all that then, Matthew, come back to the original question. Mm -hmm. It should come as no surprise that there are people recognizing the racism in the construction of highways and other kinds of infrastructure. Scholars like Nathan Colley in his book, A World More Concrete, has shown how the infrastructure of urban development was used to carve up the land and served to secure the durability of segregation, right? You ensure how one population would not necessarily run into the other population, except through points of designated contact. 
and infrastructure was created to prevent that kind of conflict. You control people's movement through these kinds of efforts to modernize your infrastructure and to civilize your infrastructure. You guarantee that people would stay in their own lanes. You don't cross certain boundaries. You use the built environment to dictate that. With that said, it is my absolute pleasure to talk to this guest today, graduate student at the University of Arkansas. I have to, I think I have to say that I'm on your committee. <laughs> he is an entrepreneur, he's an artist, he's a philanthropist, and he's a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Arkansas. And most interestingly, his research examines modern environment segregation in Arkansas, in the city that he grew up in, Little Rock. He's founded the media company Visionary Enterprises, which has been in operation since 2016, produces media, events, and has a mission to preserve black culture. He also has the Michelle Film Lab, which is a collaborative initiative to build a community of resources for filmmakers of color in Arkansas. And I'm so proud to announce this. He was just awarded the Artist 360 Community Activator Grant. He just out here balling, just grants <laughs> on top of grants on top of grants on top of grants. So I'm so proud to have with us today, Eric Hughes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that awesome introduction. <laughs> Wonderful. So, Eric, I want you to start by telling me about growing up in Little Rock, because I'm sure it will help to explain how you come to your project. How was it growing up in Little Rock? What? Tell me, someone who is not from the America, <laughs> what is it about Little Rock? Mm. Well, that's a that's a great question to, to leap off this conversation. Um, so... I like to, I guess, preference anybody who asks about Little Rock. Are you familiar with Outkast, the rap group Outkast? I know. I am are, not so that just, old, Eric. I got you. So, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and and probably one of their more famous songs, uh, "Elevators," me and you, yo, yo mama, mama and yo cousin too. too. All right. So, <laughs> Big Boy has a verse where he comes in right after Andre, and he says, "Putting the South up on the map is like Little Rock the banging." Blank say. Mother, that plan, we paying. So that's Little Rock. Little Rock is known for violence. It's known for crime. It's known for gang activity. It's known for culture. It's known for black history, activism. And there's a lot of Little Rock that the rest of the world doesn't know, and that's by intent. Mm -hmm. So um, growing up in Little Rock, there's a terminology for the understanding about the, the concepts that you were referring to in your, in your opening. There's two different Little Rocks. There's a Little Rock north of 630, Interstate 630. When I say 630, I'm referring to uh, Federal Interstate 630. North of 630 and then south of 630. And everybody in the city understands that. The city reflects that physically, it reflects it emotionally, and it reflects it culturally. And as a black person growing up, south of I-630, you felt as if this was where you were supposed to be. Because when you went elsewhere beyond Interstate 630 or to other places in the city, you didn't see anything that reminded you of where you were from. You didn't see anybody 
that looked like you or any communities that reflected the culture that you see south of 630. So you understand that it's, uh, it's two different Little Rocks, it's two different worlds. One of the things that really captured this for me, and I share this when I talk about my research, is that I happen to live right next to the interstate in Little Rock that cuts through the middle of the city itself. And when I was little, I did a lot of volunteer work for the Martin Luther King Commission, which was located downtown Little Rock. It was on the other side of I-630, and it was where a lot of, it was right down from the state capitol. So you you ran into a lot of people of power, you ran into a lot of connected individuals, uh, decision makers. And I would go there to do volunteer work every day, and I was probably 12, 13, and then I would cross back over to the freeway and come home and be in the hood. And you had a total different understanding about the same city. You were probably talking about geographically less than a five-mile difference. Right. But there's two different worlds. And this, that's the experience that you have growing up in Little Rock, particularly as a black person or a person of color. There are spaces where black and brown communities exist, and it almost feels when you're growing up there, if you don't know anything about the research that I do, intentional. I can definitely feel you because I always tell people when I first came to the United States and playing sports and traveling around and seeing that segregation in the ground, having not known anything like that wasn't fed to us through TV and media growing up in Jamaica. And when I saw the segregation and saw, okay, the buildings over here look like this and the ones over here don't look like this, I'm like, does the president know? <laughs> Somebody, I'm going to write the president yes. a letter. <laughs> he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> right. So when did you realize that there was this hidden history to be told through I-630 in, in Little Rock? Well, there's a, a rich history to the city itself. Little Rock has a, a, a tremendous history as a southern city. A, one of those cities, when you think about Montgomery, Selma, Birmingham, Little Rock has a legacy right along those cities. It has. The, it was one of the space of one of the major civil civil rights battles. Yeah. In American history. Yeah. So Little Rock has a legacy as rich as those spaces, and until recently, it wasn't as celebrated. Until as recently as the Clinton administration, it wasn't as celebrated. These moments in Arkansas history were in a lot of ways points of shame and this history was in effect hidden. When you talk about the the early history in, in Little Rock and you and you mentioned Lovecraft Country and they talk that's referring to uh Tulsa, correct? Is that talking about Tulsa, the Lovecraft? No, that no, it's was talking the, about Chicago. No, the one you're thinking of, it's another HBO show. I can't think of what yeah, it's called. Oh, it's Watchmen. A, the Watchmen, correct. Watchmen. So the Watchmen refers to the, the massacre in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. But in Arkansas, at the same time frame, in Elaine, these, Elaine. The, these yeah. same processes there of were racial violence. many racial massacres in ni- the Red Summer of 1919. And throughout American history, but also particularly as a part of Arkansas's history. This, right. We have a legacy of racial violence and racial trauma because we are a Southern state. Right. And this, this history is not celebrated in Arkansas as it is in places throughout the other places throughout the South. And a lot of that, that that's a whole different conversation about 
Arkansas's wrestling with this racial past and mm-hmm. the identity of the type of people here in Arkansas compared to other southern states like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana where they don't play. Are you trying to say Arkansas don't do no kind of reflecting? Well, what I'm going to say is the Arkansas's reflective is subjective. We, we choose what we reflect on from a historical standpoint. And that in a lot of ways, is has been Arkansas's identity when it comes to racial history. There are stories that are selectively told, and the way they're told isn't necessarily the way they occurred. Now, tell me about I-630. Where does it start? Where does it, how does it meander through the city? Where does it end? You said it goes through the heart of the city. Absolutely. So my dissertation project is, is titled uh, Through the Heart of the City, Interstates and Black Geographies in Urban America. Mm-hmm. So the part through the heart of the city comes from the history of Interstate 630 in Little Rock. And Interstate, but that's also from Stevie. From where? Stevie. Talk to me. Through the heart of the city. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. That's It's got an old soul to it. It's got an old soul to it. And, like but it. it's fitting. But it's absolutely fitting when you look at the history of Little Rock itself and really the the history of interstate construction in modern urban America, how these routes for these interstates were placed in a lot of ways in accordance to the intersections between race and class. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Interstate 630 in Little Rock, this project was a part of the Eisenhower Federal Interstate System, but it wasn't an initial construction, one of the early projects in the Eisenhower Federal Highway System. This project, this I-630 project, was a long-standing proposal by city planners in Little Rock from the late 1920s and into the 1930s. And it relates to this conversation that you were talking about migration. In the classes that I teach, I tell my students, particularly in my African-American history classes, I tell them that black history is American history. And so these things that occur to and within and on to black communities don't happen within a vacuum. They happen within intersections of all of the other movements in American history. And when you look at the early 20th century, particularly the, the, the end of the 1920s and how the mid, the 1920s themselves and into the late 1920s, how the different sectors like the agriculture sector were impacted by the effects of the Great Depression long before 1929. And this impacted migration because when you're talking about agricultural workers, you're talking about black folks. Right. You're talking about sharecroppers. Tenant farmers. Exactly. And so these are the people who are moving into urban spaces seeking better opportunities, whether Mm -hmm. it's urban spaces in the south like Little Rock or urban spaces in the north like Chicago, New York, uh, Boston, wherever. And so as this urbanization is occurring, this is, a, this is a movement that's happening in American history. It's not just black people that are moving to cities, but because of this pressure brought by this influx of movement, the, the racial codes of America are, are then exacerbated uh-huh. when black people come into these spaces and you start to see more black people in these spaces. And what is all these black people doing here now? Right. We got to get some order to this. Uh-huh. And so these policies were then created to try to renew urban spaces to the goals of white supremacy. Absolutely. Um, Which points to maybe Stephen Woodward's thesis, I think, a little bit more than I was expecting to think about today, right? Uh, How people 
tend to think about segregation as immutable folkways of the South, right? Um, and he was saying that segregation did not emerge seamlessly from slavery, which it seems like what you're saying, that Jim Crow segregation was a modern urban creation um, masquerading as, as, a, as a timeless Southern um, tradition. So mm-hmm. it was a response to all mm-hmm. this movement that usurped mm-hmm. You know, uh, what people had imagined to be the the kinds of boundaries and, you know, what what was comfortable proximity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? yeah. So in, in, in our, for I for just connecting it back to Interstate 630 development development in Little Rock, I show, first of all, that these policies are foundational to American history. Um, there are scholars who point out that this concept of the impossibility of integration, the the need to segregate races, uh, whether it's enslaved Africans or Native Americans and white colonists, this existed before America itself existed on paper as a constitution. Mm -hmm. And so these goals are reflected even as you move into the 20th century, particularly because of the, the increase in black people in urban spaces and the, the efforts of black people to take on their own futures and fates in this country to try to secure rights, particularly in areas of higher education, mm-hmm. and how this created pressure that led to 1954 and the desegregation of American schools, which scared the hell out of white people, particularly now that there are more black people in urban spaces. Now our kids are having to go to school together. So in Little Rock... They haven't gotten over that yet. I mean... You, right. But in Little Rock, so this... this seamlessly flows with the history of Little Rock's urban development when you look at 1957 and the desegregation of Little Rock Central High School. Well, in response to this incident, there is a need to clearly define where each group will be going forward, right? Right. So you see the development of this interstate project that was a longstanding goal from city developers in the early 1920s, and it lost steam. It didn't have enough money. Now it gets wrapped into this federal interstate project to where the money is funneled into Arkansas Little Rock to develop this interstate by people like Congressman Wilbur Mills. Mm -hmm. And Congressman Wilbur Mills was the Ways and Means Commissioner in, in the U.S. Congress in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And he was the most powerful person when it comes to finance in Congress. So he cuts the check. And he gets to say the money gets to go to I-630. So that kind of... And people, people, the idea, given what was happening in Little Rock, the idea, people were ready to latch on to... The, the, the time had come. Yes, for the time had come to continue to define what Little Rock's future would be. But also there's an understanding from a political standpoint, which refers back to the conversation I was talking about earlier, about how Arkansans are concerning race in comparison to the other Southerners, Mm -hmm. other Southern states, Arkansans understood that the tides were turning when it came to race. And so the development of I-630 then takes on an economic perspective to where this is something that can improve the reputation of the city from this legacy of racial trauma. Right. And you were talking, I think at one point, um, if I recall, about Henry Grady's New South. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So who was Henry Grady and what is this new South? And, you know, what are the objectives that Arkansas would align themselves to? So Henry Grady was a key figure when it comes to this new South ideology. When we look at the early 20th century, this shift away from agricultural production 
and the post-slavery society was a key factor in redefining Southern identity. Henry Grady was out of Atlanta, and he was a journalist and entrepreneur, and he was one of many. Because the Grady School of, um, at one of these business schools, mm -hmm. uh, Grady School, people were trying to knock it down along with Fulbright. Well, because of the legacy. But <laughs> yeah. it, and, and the legacy is, is that, you know, these, these New South individuals wanted to remake the, the, the production capacity of the South while retaining the social codes from the institution of slavery. They wanted to move away from this, focus on agricultural production and move into more of an industrial model in, in, in alignment with northern cities that had moved towards more of an agriculture or that always even had more of an a industrial approach. And so you saw that in cities like Atlanta, cities like Birmingham. These places became production capitals and this New South model had more of an industrial production approach than an agricultural model. And that was reflected in Arkansas by the industrialization in areas in timber industries and, and, and textile production. And this led to growth in factories in cities like Little Rock and Pine Bluff and also black people moving to go get those jobs and moving up and having affluence and moving into areas where they would encounter white people and their kids would go to school with white kids. And this would, again, and increase. And this is the dilemma. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is the dilemma. So Interstate 630 was kind of, as you said, the, the response to these pressures. And as Interstate 630 developed, this outlined where black and brown people in Little Rock now are. Exactly. So when was it constructed? And it started in 1963, in April of 1963. Um, it was completed in 1985, I believe. So, mm -hmm. and this is again segregation in education and the desegregation of American education is totally connected to urban development and this concept of where kids will be schooled mm -hmm. because. The, if you know anything about the Brown versus Board of Education decision, there was two Brown versus Board of Education decisions because the first one didn't. Brown one and Brown two. <laughs> so <laughs> All due and deliberate speed. Y'all weren't going fast enough, sir. Absolutely. And so <laughs> that clause, all deliberate speed, allowed southern states to massively resist this decision. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that you saw busing become the way that integration actually was forced onto American cities. And this further enhanced the need for how do we continue to develop the barriers between these different people groups as well as adjust to this developing economy. Because there are one of the, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, but one of the more interesting facets about my research is the different intersectional areas, the different histories that it brings together, whether it's interstate history, urban policy, racial trauma, you know, all of these different areas. But you understand that they all play a factor into the development of America's historical narrative Absolutely. and the development of the car and the car culture to American history is a huge part of interstate development, as well as this notion of how can we make this tool that's going to continue to develop our cities and continue to develop our economies and feed our fuel for the cars, 
as well as continue to show where black and brown people and white people can be. Yeah, that's why I started that story with the Green Book and Plessy, right, in, ter- in thinking about bodies moving in automobiles. Absolutely. You know, this this seems so mundane, and I think a lot of people perhaps would not think about it this way, that this had people up at night in racial anxiety, right? And as you said, with Brown versus the Board of Education, with that striking down Plessy versus Ferguson. People now have to come up with new ways as to why can't you pass this barrier? Oh, if we create this road that creates a hassle where they would have to travel two miles in order to make it around the city, then it would create this segregation that Brown is telling us that we have to take down. And we can remove ourselves if from the perspective of white communities into suburbia mm-hmm. through the process of white flight, white flight and create private schools and private academies that these students who are left in black and brown communities and go to these public schools can nowhere near afford and we to can do z- use zoning and covenants in order to um, on a local level legislate that. So so we're seeing then how this highway is functioning to segregate the city. You just explained that perfectly well. We're seeing the divide and rule. You talk about the construction of the freeway. A lot of these freeways have a reputation of going through black communities. What did they do? Absolutely. So one of the things that I hypothesized in taking on this research project was this concept that freeways targeted black communities. And when I looked at Little Rock and compared it to other cities across the country, you see there are similarities and there are inconsistencies. There are similarities and objectives in many of these urban locations to segregate the population but there are different processes by which they would occur in, in different cities. And ultimately, the end result would be the same, but how they approach the end result would be different from location to location. So in Little Rock, one of the similarities in many of these projects was reflected in Little Rock, and, and it addresses the question of whether, these, whether freeways went through black communities, and they absolutely did. But what I discovered was that through talking with historians and talking with uh, urban planners and talking with city policy developers that a lot of these interstate developments took the path of least resistance. So if you are a wealthy, established white community and you have civic organizations and mom groups and all these people who understand the impact of what interstate construction would do to your community, these people of means resisted. Mm-hmm. They, they organize. They have the means to resist. Absolutely. There are These other communities that do not have the power, the means, the gravitas, the push to resist. The insight. Yeah. The connections. And I also wanted for you to talk a little bit about policies like imminent domain, urban renewal. Mm-hmm. That would be used to take over some of these black communities. Urban renewal was a set of policies that were, in effect, a response to this migration, this black migration into cities, into American cities, and really just the the overall migration of immigrants and black people into urban spaces. There would be the these 
places in urban areas that would just be full of decay, communities full of a lack of investment. And if you think of the concept of shanty towns or just those types of low-end residential spaces that would be an eyesore for city developers, city planners, and any economic opportunity. So these were detractions for the potential growth of urban spaces. And so urban renewal policies were implemented throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s, particularly as in alignment with Roosevelt's New Deal policies to try to reinvest into American communities and give Americans jobs and really look at what this migration was doing to American cities. You would see studies conducted that would, you know, survey cities across America and they would all indicate that these urban spaces would have a decayed heart. And this decayed heart will refer to the spaces where poor people live, black and brown communities. And even if you think about photo studies like uh, Jacob Reed's photo study, Where the Other Half Lives, that's a photo study of early century, uh, early 20th century urbanites living in New York City. And, and it's just taking photos. It's a photo study of the tenements the, mm-hmm. where these poor people lived and these conditions that were reflected not only in urban spaces, but also in rural places as well um, where poor communities lived. And so this was a problem for urban growth. This, these communities, these decayed communities. Blighted communities. Blighted communities. So the efforts to redesign urban spaces was largely dictated around removing this decayed heart, these blighted communities, and reestablishing valuable property assets in these urban places. It's similar to the idea of gentrification yeah. that we have now, mm-hmm. but the policies were implemented through devaluing of black and brown land. Yep. So, again, the, the same concept of least resistance, these people didn't have the means to resist these policies. Right. They also were deemed by these city planners to be living on the poorest land in these urban spaces. Yeah. So urban developers, groups like in Little Rock, 50 for the Future, these, these wealthy civic organizations uh, were rally for the city personnel were rally for people in power in government and local governments to come and redevelop in these places. They would target these communities as what we call now opportunity zones. Yeah. But at, the, at that time, they were just blighted communities that needed redevelopment. And so once these policies were set and these communities were targeted, these people would be physically displaced right. from these communities and relocated to other areas, designated areas mm-hmm. in urban spaces in Little Rock, south of I-630. Having lost their real estate, and so now you're operating within very little um, space and turf. Right. In addition to the displacement, there's a, a subtle insidiousness to urban renewal because urban renewal is a psychological phenomenon. Urban renewal is the idea that there is good and bad parts of town. But that goodness and badness is related to race, is attached to race. Absolutely. It's like drugs, right? Absolutely. There's illicit drugs and they're illicit drugs, and what's illicit drugs is related to whiteness, and what's illicit is related to blackness. Absolutely. So the insidious part about it is this, re- this attachment to race is reflected in, in the language of urban renewal. Mm-hmm. And the language of urban renewal would dictate that these blighted communities are now being relocated to standardized housing. Their lives are being improved. They are yeah. showing that they are taking pictures it's a of these new housing. Tone. 
it's just the same as the conversations about slavery or any or other Native institutions Americans that apply to people of color, right? Them to a reservation from from savagery to civility, right? Yeah. But in urban renewal, these processes would build. They were reflecting housing projects, and even in these initial urban renewal phases, there are historians like Ira Katz Nelson who write books that talk like that uh, that talk about when affirmative action, action was, was white, white and how mm-hmm. even in these early days of urban renewal policies there were um, segregation involved and who could access these different facilities. Even if when you look into the New Deal uh, history, the, the, the relief and, and, and recovery policies that Roosevelt implemented were dispersed in, in segregated fashion. Because how much percentage of black people were farmers and all this kind of, who did not have access to any of these benefits? When he passed the Agricultural Adjustment Act to pay white farmers to stop growing crops, how much of Talk those, how it. much of that money did did it go drop down to the share crop, the trickle down part of it? Talk it didn't trickle down, right? So it didn't come down to the sharecroppers. And these policies are reflected in in agency and after agency, institution after institution when it comes to American urban development. Mm-hmm. And so in this urban renewal space, particularly in Little Rock, you see you saw opportunities for infrastructural developments like housing projects. And then as we move into the the age of the car and the age of de- desegregation, interstate construction. And if they didn't get you through urban renewal, they got you through eminent domain. We're like, oh, the government the, wants your land. We can take your land and we're going to give you this. Essentially, that's how these people were dispossessed yeah. was by eminent domain. We're going to give you X amount of dollars, even though it's only a percentage of what your, your actual. Exactly. And so obviously they want the land. Mm-hmm. That's why they're trying to move you off of the land. Yeah. So they're giving it to you at pennies on a dollar. But now you can't afford to move, move back into else. these areas yeah. other than the standardized housing that they're that yeah. they're so you hardly have a choice because you're between a rock and a hard place. That's why I say that interst- in my research that interstates determine black and brown geographies. They help define mm-hmm. where these communities are supposed they to you. be. They root you. They root you. R o o t n r o u t e. Absolutely. You know, at the same time. These goals were not hidden. They were actually celebrated through a different set of language. And even the the understanding that the reality of the segregation the segregation that would occur after and as these interstates were constructed, this was explained away with this same cool intent. And so I, I can give you an example. Um, in Little each no federal construction project happens without extensive planning, planning and planning and surveying and surveying. There are so many boxes that have to be checked, so many administrative things that have to happen before something like an interstate can be uh, constructed. And so each of these uh, developments have planning documents. And when you look in the planning documents for Interstate 630, they have to articulate the community responses to these interstate or to these infrastructural projects. They have to talk about all aspects of the development from each perspective because that's what a general scientific study will do. It will give right. you each aspect and it will give you a recommendation of what will happen if nothing occurs. Mm-hmm. And so you get all of these different nuanced perspectives in the planning documents, but what you also see is that communities were well aware 
of the segregative nature of interstate developments. And in Little Rock, there were, if you know anything about freeway history, there's an entire generation that revolted against freeway construction as it was occurring in cities across America. They call them the freeway revolt generations. And these generations would highlight the impact of these uh, developments in urban spaces, particularly on people of color. And in Little Rock, um, there was one particular uh, note in the, the the planning documents that mentioned that of uh, the community comment reflected that they understood that Interstate 630 was going to racially segregate the city, and the the planning the planners for Interstate 630 who were conducting this this uh, planning document and reporting on on these community responses, they explained away this community response or this community uh, recognition that the interstates was going to racially segregate Little Rock, and they explained it away just like this. They said, quote, no data has been produced to date, which indicates that I-630 would create or encourage residential segregation. The relocation program, the relocation of people who were displaced by Mm -hmm. interstate construction, the relocation program is also carried out without racial bias, end quote. Mm -hmm. So, what that showed me was, so the intent is not hidden. Mm-hmm. The intent is justified. Yeah. It's not I hidden. Mean, it's explained away, it's ex- as you it's said. It's like when, remember, they got a doctor. Away. They ex- they got a doctor to explain black people running away from slavery as, as a mental disorder. As a mental disorder. Right. In a land that reveres freedom. Absolutely. People running away was explained away as a mental disorder. It wasn't like, oh, they want freedom too. No. <laughs> right. Well, first of all, there has to be, oh, there are people. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but nonetheless, yeah. the, 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 the explanations were informative to me on the intent. And the explanations reveal the most important factor in my arguments, in my research arguments, because you will never see a document stating that the goals of interstate constructions were to segregate cities. It's impossible. But what you can see if you read between the lines in comments like that is persistence. Yeah. And persistence is the key to understanding the goal. How strongly are you moving towards your objective? In spite of In spite of of what the community and the research and all of these different aspects are saying, Mm -hmm. you're still justifying your intent. So are there any movement towards reparation or has the city of of, uh, Little Rock acknowledged that it destroyed these black communities? Are there, like in other places, making attempts at reparation, restoration, you know, justice? That's a great question. And it reflects back to the comments that I make about how Arkansas deals with its racial history. Arkansas has a unique perspective when it comes to race. Arkansas has always, from its state inception, had a unique history when it comes to race, particularly where it stands on black freedom. And even if you look at Cities like Fayetteville, cities like Fayetteville were a key geographical location for the Civil War. This was a Union stronghold, and it also 
is reflective of the concept that Arkansans have always wavered when it comes to issues of race in a way that other Southern states do not. If you look at Governor Orville Faubus, <laughs> Governor Orville Faubus stood against desegregation at Little Rock Central High School because he was a political opportunist, mm-hmm. not because he was a staunch racist. Now, there are, there are Arkansans, and there is staunch racism in Arkansas. There is staunch racism in Arkansas history, but it's not acknowledged in a way that it is in Mississippi, in Georgia. In Al- you can drive through Georgia right now and still see Confederate flags waving next to the highways as you go into Florida. Right. So it's still understood in a way that in Arkansas, it has historically been ran away from. What I hope to provide is context, because I, I personally, especially after doing this research, in, in some ways agree with the sentiment that systems can't be racist. Now, I'm going to explain. A system to me has no moral quality. It's like fire. A fire can burn your house down or it can warm it. It's all in how it's used. And systems like governments have been used to certain ends because of who's controlling the systems, the lack of blackness within policymaking positions, the lack of the consideration of even the black experience complicates how the system functions. So if there are more black people in control of the systems and they have conscious intent in making the system function a different way, the system then begins to function but that's in the different thing. ways. They would have to have conscious intent because people would say the same things like, look at Obama. Mm-hmm. Obama was president when Black Lives Matter um, became a movement. Simple phrase, Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. came under Obama's government, right? And what could Obama do? Congress functions a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, the Senate functions a certain way. Mm -hmm. The extent of his power can only go so far. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, We could talk about the university, Certain, you know, if if people are in, black people are in certain positions of power, especially, I know you don't like this and you're just like me because I try to put myself outside of academia, like I'm too cool for school, you know, (laughs) for a very long time. And I had to admit that I'm one of the the, um, beaver lake elite, you know. But yeah, so you have to admit that you are beaver lake elite, uh, Eric. I'm (laughs) I'm an emerging academic. (laughs) And so, and so there you'll realize that, I mean, look at all the protests that we did for Fulbright. What changed? Right. Nothing. So there's a certain system in place, how the university as a system functions in re- its relationship with donors. Absolutely. As, a, you know, as a, that systematic process, they need the donor dollars to function. The donors exert that kind of pressure. Do not give Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure. Okay, we won't do that. So that, that, that even whoever is at the top, because they want that money or cloud or whatever, they're going to keep that machine going. Absolutely. And if you add on to the fact that the history of how the system was developed, that does have racist uh, implications intertwined within it. Absolutely. But my question then becomes what happens when the donor changes colors? That we might start the to see change. The statue changes. It's, that's a transaction. 
that, and it has a certain dollar sign amount. Yeah. And if a black donor cuts a check for that certain dollar sign amount. Yeah, but when we think about the interlocking nature of that in terms of um, how many how many black people are able to do that. Or understand that that's how it works. Yes. Or that, you know, that's the kind of pressure that they can exert. Again, the system. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. To me, the system itself, while it does point to the the injustices, the system, in a sense, has no ability to function outside of the people who control it. So like you were mentioning about Obama and the Congress, what happens if the Congress looks total, totally different from a, racial dem- from a de- racial demographic? Do you think his policies are that much more, if he had a, a conscious intent, like you were saying, because the key is conscious intent when it comes to systems. But if, if the leadership then had the support necessary to make those decisions, the system can function differently. Yeah, but it, the the conscious intent might be the part that's sticking in my craw for me because even black people internalize Absolutely. those ideologies, right? Absolutely. Remember, African-Americans and Caribbean people went to Africa to civilize Absolutely. Africans. The same policies they, they were trying to escape from, they went and did the to Africa. The pressures that the system exi- exert, when, even if you think about Emmett Till, how Emmett Till was discovered by black people, where his location was, where his grandfather lived. Black people told them where Emmett Till was, but do you think they chose to or were they forced to, yeah. right? So, again, the system can force these behaviors mm-hmm. even when it comes to the, the operators. But that's why the conscious intent is the key when it comes to these type of conversations because only then— be- can different decisions be made with conscious intent, you know? And that's what I really began to correlate with my research is that these decisions that created the systems the way they are were intentional. There were people making conscious decisions to construct the systems, to construct what their goals were and how they responded. And so it takes that same type of effort to understand it, to undermine it. Can I share a tool that yeah. I use in my research? For, mm-hmm. So actually, the, the research has evolved into this conversation of geographies, and it placed me into a, a an entirely different network when it comes to academia. So now I do a lot of work with geographical researchers. I do a lot of geographical information systems research. And one of the projects that I'm working on currently is a grant for the National F- Science Foundation in collaboration with a, uh, two sociologists and criminologists here on campus, uh, Grant Darv and Casey Taggart. What we're essentially building is an interdisciplinary model to show how the history of these policies and decisions play out on a ground level. And what we're looking at is crime and violent, violent crime in Little Rock at, at these various decade markers to show over time how the geography has resulted in this Mm-hmm. These different these different violent crimes and where these areas are located, and it and it highlighted a tool that I that we use in geographical information systems research called the Opportunity Atlas. Mm. And so when you look up the Opportunity Atlas, you can put in any zip code in America, and it'll break down by geographical factor, things like income, things like education level, things like incarceration rates, things like single parent homes. But it shows you the difference in this space versus that space. And then when you look at uh, cities like Little Rock and Interstate 630, you can physically see in the data how these these ideas are reflected. And so the the nice residential spaces, the nice commercial and business spaces that exist north of 630 and Little Rock, that 
is mirrored by food deserts, education deserts, health and wellness deserts, hyper-policing, all of these different other geographic factors that are clearly visible when you use a geographical information systems tool like the Opportunity Atlas. Like you can see it, and I use that when I do my research talks to explain to students what I'm talking about in real life. And I, it doesn't matter what city you choose. I did a, a talk at uh, TCU recently, and I showed students in Fort Worth how this process played out for them using the Opportunity Atlas. And they were, you should see some of the feedback that they gave. They were like, you know, I, I can never drive on an interstate and feel the same because you now see how it impacts your life, your everyday life and experience. No, oh, absolutely. What should we take away from your study? That this is real life for everybody, especially in, in America, whether you're in an urban town, whether you're in a, in a small town, this psychology of black and brown geographies applies to everybody's American experience. I like to argue the core of what America actually is. This concept of the segregation of the races and the impossibility of equality. Well, thank you so very much, Eric. Uh, that was such a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much, Matthew. Yes, thank you. Thank uh, you all for having me. Oh my goodness, this was amazing. Thank you to our guest, Eric Hughes. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore, with help from Sean Shoemaker. If you missed our three live shows, scroll back in the podcast feed and take a listen to those amazing conversations. Undisciplined is a collaboration between KUAF Public Radio, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas.